morning, everybody. Welcome to GFC, a special welcome to visitors that we have here today. My name is Warren Wright, as you heard, and I'm a leader here. And it is my privilege, as always, to open up God's Word with you. You've heard the announcements about children and child care and Bibles, pens, and outlines. If you still need any of that, put up your hand and you can still get it. So I don't have to make those announcements, so we can get right into the sermon. So the title of today's sermon is, it's a question. It's, how do you respond to suffering? It's right at the top of your outline. Now, I'm not talking about how you respond to suffering 10 years after the event, after you've had time to recover as best you can, after you've had time to think in some peace and quiet. No, I'm talking about how you respond to suffering when the wound is fresh and raw and ideas like in control, calm, moderate, peaceful, when those ideas are foreign concepts. Incidentally, talking about the 10-year look back, um, we just did Ecclesiastes as a church, and there we got to see the author look back over his whole life and examine what happened to him in the wisdom of hindsight. But now as a church, we're doing Job, where we see Job's suffering and we see his reactions in the moment, in the suffering. So what suffering did Job have to endure? Well, he had a wife and seven sons and three daughters, and he had many servants and 10,000 animals, and he was the greatest of everyone in the East. The kind of guy who gets his face on Time magazine as the most influential and successful man of his generation, that kind of guy. And then Armageddon, thieves, bandits, hurricane winds, orbital strikes, his children die, his servants die, his animals die or are stolen, all in one day. And just after this, he breaks out in painful sores over his whole body. His wife gives him terrible advice, so we never hear from her directly again. Now, during all this, we saw in last week's sermon, Job responds really well. He worships God. And this is truly incredible and a great example of Job's faith in God, Job's fear of God. But there's still 40 chapters of this book left. So something else is going to happen. And what does happen? Well, Job's friends come from far away to console him. And the first thing they do is they sit down with him. And they don't say anything for seven days and seven nights. And then Job breaks the silence. Job speaks. Job speaks after having had seven days of suffering in silence. Job speaks after having seven days of intense physical pain. After seven days of intense emotional pain, after having lost everything. He speaks after seven days where he had time to think about his suffering. So this is not the knee-jerk reaction to suffering. This is not the reflex reaction. Neither is this the ten years after the event look back over the suffering this is the state of Job's soul after his afflictions have had a bit of time to really set in, to really fester. This is the anguish that just won't go away. This is Job speaking out during the worst of his suffering. Can you identify with Job? Can you remember times in your life when you were suffering greatly? How did you respond in the moment? Or perhaps you're going through a time of your life now where you are suffering. How are you responding? 
Today we'll be looking at Job 3, which is on page 268 of the Church Bible, if you've got one of those. And we get to see the three responses that Job starts out with. These are the same as the points in your outline. So the first one is Job curses. Second one is Job regrets. The third one is Job asks why. And after that, we'll have a look at application to see how, what we can do with this in our lives. So curse, regret, question. Can you relate to these responses? Have you ever struck out in anger or regretted or asked anguished questions in the midst of your suffering? I know I have. But what is the point of seeing Job's cursing, suffering, or regretting, and questioning? I think the point is very simple, and this is what I'll be coming back to a few times in the sermon. In the midst of deep suffering, anger, regret, and anguished questioning can be experienced by Christians, even mature ones. Let me say that again. In the midst of deep suffering, anger, regret, and anguished questioning can be experienced by Christians, even mature ones. So what do you do with this knowledge? Well, you be like Job. You keep asking the hard questions. You keep seeking God, even when it seems pointless, even when nothing makes sense, even when hope seems to have fled. Let us pray. Father God, today your word speaks to us about how Job responds to suffering, the sufferings you allowed in his life. Father, suffering is not a fun topic. Neither is how we respond to suffering an especially joyful topic. But since no one is going to live a suffering-free life, please give us open hearts, open our ears, that we might learn from the example of Job. Change our hearts by the Holy Spirit as we dig into this turbulent topic. Help us to learn how to respond to suffering in a way that actually helps and in a way that, more importantly, pleases you. God, give me the grace to preach faithfully and clearly. Amen. All right, open your Bibles to page 268, and let's read Job 3 together. All right, verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it, and let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning. Because... It did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come out of the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have laid down and been quiet. I would have slept, then I would have been at rest. With kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with the princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver, or why was I not like a hidden, stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling. There the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. 
Why is life given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death but it comes not, who dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who, and rejoice exceedingly, and are glad when they find the grave? Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. It's quite a bit of heavy stuff in there, eh? Step back for a moment from the detail, and I want to point out something pretty big that's just happened in Job. Did you notice the change of literature type from, cha- from chapter 1 and 2 to chapter 3? Just look at the formatting. Most Bibles were formatted differently. Job 3 is presented as poetry. 1 and 2 are narration as prose. Now, Hebrew poetry doesn't have rhyme and rhythm like English poetry has. The rhyme and rhythm of Hebrew poetry is in ideas. It's in similarities and contrasts between things. It is in the building of a concept from small to great. So, why did the author switch to poetry? I mean, did Job and his friends actually talk like this? So whether they did or they didn't is not actually the point. Even if it was just the author who did this, he did it for a reason. Why did he do it? Let me give you an example. Um, There's a whole bunch of verses about cursing and and lots of other things. Why didn't he just say, Job cursed, he regretted, he asked why. End, next chapter. I mean, that's just the facts, right? So why did he include all this vivid imagery? And you see, the point of poetry is to engage your heart. This is not an academic exercise. This is not a thought experiment. This is meant to get your feelings engaged. The point of this detail is for you as Job's, well, as the audience, to get into Job's shoes and feel what he feels. The point is for you and me to be able to identify with Job and then stand with him as he asks the question, why? You see, most of the rest of this book is about answering the question, why? And so we need to grapple with the seriousness behind the question, with the pain, in order to properly interpret the rest of the whole book. So remember this in the coming weeks as we really dig into this idea of why Job is suffering. But for now, let's get back to cursing. And you're on point one of your outline, Job curses. And uh, let's observe a few things from the text here. So what does Job curse? Look at verse 3. He he curses the night of his conception and the day of his birth. Now this is quite an important point because way back in chapter 1 and 2, Satan twice tells God that Job will curse God. And then Job's wife tells Job to curse God and die. Do you see Job cursing God here? No, instead Job is cursing abstract concepts. He's cursing day and night. They can't possibly be responsible for his suffering, and neither can they actually be hurt by his cursing. But you might ask me, but Warren, if he's cursing day and night, God made day and night, so therefore he's cursing God. It's a valid question. But you see, the author wants us to see Job curse But he doesn't want us to therefore infer that Job is cursing God. And we know this because later on we see Job talking about God as it relates to his cursing. 
uh, sorry, as it relates to his suffering. So we get to see directly from Job what his opinion of God is. And when Job gets to God, he stops cursing. He just asks questions. And so from the context of the chapter, we see Job cursing, but he's not actually cursing God. As Satan predicted and his wife requested. So let's observe the next thing. Why does Job curse these things? Look at verse 10. Because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Basically, Job curses the day and the night for letting him be born and for allowing him to experience trouble. So how does Job curse? What is the content of his curse? And here we get to the meat of the matter, and I'm going to paraphrase a bit and try and give you the core, the essence. For the day of his birth, Job wishes death isolation, to be forgotten by God, to be terrified. For the night of his conception, Job wishes death, unhappiness, pointlessness, uselessness, to be scorned by even the insane, and to always be hopeless. What do you make of that? Is that a comprehensive curse? People don't curse like that these days. These days we think cursing is... ah, four-letter word, use short, shallow, and often vulgar statements, an explosion of emotion. That's actually pathetic, really. Uh, Job shows us a real curse, and the unforgettable kind. Job's cursing is long and deep, and it's just plain terrifying. I mean, do you know anyone you hate enough for this to be true for them? So what kind of emotions do you think Job was feeling that he was going through for him to evoke such a horrible curse. The point here is that this isn't just some temporary, unhappy feeling that can be expressed by a few words, punch a wall, cry a little bit, shout at someone for a few moments. No, these are hot, angry emotions that come bursting out of seven days of suffering and silence. So we must ask, why does Job invoke such a horrible curse? And you see, I think the reason why Job invokes this curse is because this is actually how Job is feeling. Job is feeling abandoned by God. He's feeling hopeless. He's feeling joyless, terrified and scorned. Isn't that actually how we often respond to suffering? We want others to feel how we're feeling. We even have a phrase for it. Have you heard the phrase, give you a taste of your own medicine? How about the idea of taking it out on something innocent? So I'm a drummer, and there have been times when I have beat those drums for reasons other than musical excellence. (laughs) At times, my reason for hitting those drums was to express my anger. I wanted to beat those cymbals because I felt like life was beating me up, and they make a really satisfying crash. (laughs) But what did those drums ever actually do to me? They were innocent, and they got the brunt of my anger. What about you? When suffering hits you hard and you explode in strong emotion, Do you also blame things that can't possibly be at fault? Do you want whoever or whatever is responsible for your suffering to suffer the way you're suffering? Do your friends and family feel your displeasure when you get a bad grade on an exam or a performance review? Or if somebody is nasty to you or just plain misunderstands you? Or how about if you've experienced some suffering like Job and someone close to you dies? Or if your worldly possessions are destroyed or stolen. Or if you're assaulted, threatened or betrayed. Or if you just live in pain from some illness. 
Have you had to struggle with anger? Did you take it out in something innocent? The point of seeing Job cursing is to realize that we are like Job at a deep level. When we suffer, we struggle with anger and blaming others. But unlike Job, we often blame each other, which actually hurts, instead of Job cursing abstract concepts. So when we suffer, we struggle with anger and blaming others. This is a normal struggle. Even the man Job, who God had a very high opinion of, he struggled with it. And so when anger and blame rise in your heart, realize that even the most mature Christians will have this battle. But where does the battle go? Do we just stay there, angry? Well, let's have a look at what Job does next. We're now on point two of your outline. Job regrets. So what comes after anger and cursing? Regret. And I'm not just talking about regretting your angry cursing. Regret, where you wish something didn't happen as though you could change the past. So what did Job regret? Look at verse 11. Why did I not die at birth, come out of the womb, and expire? From verse 11 to 19, Job laments that he was born at all. He would rather have died before birth. He would rather have died at birth, and he would rather have died just after birth. Job regrets. Why does Job regret being given life? And here we see the answer in verse 13. For then I would have laid down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest. We saw in verse 10 that Job's reason for cursing was the trouble, the suffering he endured. So to put those two ideas together, Job, for Job, life brought suffering. And so therefore death can bring rest. That's his logic right now. But Job also seems to make a big deal about who he would have rested with in his death. Let's have a look at it. In in, in verses 14 and 15, we see Job will rest with the rich, the powerful, the influential. Does that sound familiar? Isn't this pretty much a description of Job before his suffering? But wait, there's more. In verse 17 to 19, we see that Job will rest with the weary, the prisoners, the small, the slave. Now, the difference between these two groups is that the first group, the rich and powerful, they are not described as enjoying their death. They didn't need to escape the troubles of life. But the second group, the weary, the prisoners and slaves, they are listed with words like cease from trouble, rest, ease and freedom. And so even though Job looked like the rich and powerful, he actually identifies with those in bondage and he longs to be free. He identifies with the lowly group because Job wants rest and the lowly group is described as getting the rest, the thing that he wants. But how does Job want his freedom? How does he want this to work out? He wants to avoid the bondage altogether by escaping this thing called life entirely. How about you? When you are suffering, do you look back and wish that there was a way that you could have escaped your troubles? Do you look back and say things like, if only I hadn't done this or said that, or if only that person didn't do this or say that. When looking for the rewind button, oh, please, can I undo this? So quite a while before I married my amazing wife, I was once in a relationship with a very nice girl. But I listened to all the wrong advice, and I disregarded some good advice people had given me, and I reaped for myself a big, fat harvest of heartache and pain. 
oh, if I could go back and undo the hurt that I suffered and caused, if I could go back and stop my bad counselors from talking to me. Even Jesus felt something like regret at the suffering of the cross. When he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he asked to have his future suffering removed. He didn't actually want to die horribly on the cross. And since he is God, he could regret in advance because he knows the future. Job expresses great regret at his suffering. We often express regret at our suffering. Even Jesus experienced regret at the prospect of his ultimate suffering. And the point here is that when regret rises in your heart, realize that it is normal. But again, what should we do with it? Where do we go from here? Well, Jesus, in his regret, he submitted to the Father's will, which he knew because his communication with God was perfect. What did Job do? And this is the huge point of the book of Job. Job asked why. And this is a huge point because the rest of the book is about Job and his friends grappling and wrestling with this question of why. The author gives this question so much airtime that we've got to pay attention to it. Today we will not try and answer the question of why. We will merely look at what it means that he asked. And so now we're on point three of your outline, which is Job asks why. And before we dig into this, let me recap where we've been. So Job suffers greatly. In response, he expresses anger in the form of a curse. He regrets his whole life, and now he asks some pretty hard questions. And the main point that we've dug from that so far is that in the midst of deep suffering, anger, regret, and anguished questioning can be experienced by Christians, even mature ones. Okay, let's try and understand these anguished questions that I've mentioned a few times. Let's read again verses 20 to 23. Verse 20. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasure? who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? So let me ask you again. How do you think Job is feeling when he asks these questions? He uses words like, in misery, bitter in soul, longing for death, confused, hedged in by God. Job is asking, why did God give me life only to then make me suffer? Notice that Job says that he's hedged in by God. And we know this is true because in chapter 1, Satan says that God hedged Job in. But you see, in chapter 1, it was a hedge of protection. Here, it's a hedge of destruction and misery. So why does Job ask this question? Let's read verses 24 to 26 again. For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Job asks why. Because he wanted peace and quiet. He wanted bread and water. But instead, he got trouble 
his nightmares come to life. He got sighing and groaning, the loud and anguished kind, not the mildly annoyed kind. I mean, after all, how would you sigh and groan if all of your family died, all of your worldly hopes and possessions were destroyed, and you suddenly had to live in intense and constant pain? Now, after all of that, Job wants escape. He wants death. But instead, he gets prolonged misery. At every turn, he can't get what he wants. This is why he asks, why? Jesus also asked why. When hanging on the cross and bearing God's wrath against our sins and being separated from God in order that we might be joined to God in the midst of extreme bodily pain, Jesus asked why. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever asked God why? When loved ones die, when hopes are crushed, when you are betrayed or hurt by others, have you ever asked God why? I can guarantee you that when that relationship I mentioned ended in heartache and pain, I certainly asked God why. And that was over being wounded from a broken relationship. How much more motivation does Job have after all the suffering he's endured? And the point here is the same as every other point, really. Asking anguished questions in the midst of suffering is normal. Perhaps you thought that if you were a mature enough Christian, then any kind of suffering would just sort of wash over you and your confidence in God would be fine. That's not actually how it works. In fact, asking questions is not only normal, but it's an expression of your faith. And I'll show you why and how in a moment. And so now we're on the last point of the outline, application. The first application is really just a comfort. It's a, a rephrasing of something I've said before. When you experience suffering and you struggle with anger, be comforted because you are not crazy. This is a normal response, even for mature Christians. But what do you do with your anger? Be like Job. Start talking to God, even when you are emotional and you can't get all the words right. Pour out your heart to God. When you experience suffering and you struggle with regret, be comforted because you are not crazy. This is a normal response, even for mature Christians. And what do you do with these regrets? Start talking to God. Be like Job. Even if you're emotional and you don't get all the words right, pour out your heart before God. Why am I stressing this? Why am I repeating this? Because as the perfect Job, this was Jesus' response in the midst of the worst suffering any man ever faced, and he's our role model. So why is it so good to start talking to God? Because by directing your questions to God during suffering, you are acknowledging that he is in charge and that he has the answers. After all, why would a self-consistent atheist ever ask God why? And yet many do. And even if you mess up some theology and some wild emotions come out, God still wants you to come to him. Even if you mess up some theology and wild emotions come out, God still wants you to come to him. The main point of this whole book of Job is to fear God in the midst of suffering. No one goes to God with questions unless you have some degree of fear of him. I mean, no one is going to earnestly plead with their dog for answers for why they're suffering. Why don't we do that? Because no one believes the dog has the answer. 
nor is the dog responsible. I mean, maybe for the small suffering, but no one believes the dog is the answer. But by asking God, we are in a sense worshiping him. By asking God, we are practicing the fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom. And this is also the main lesson from the book of Job. But, there's always a but, isn't there? But is it always easy to go to God with these questions? To go to God in the midst of suffering and actually interact with all of those turbulent emotions? No, it's not. We humans often find that we would rather avoid dealing with our pain and instead we run to distraction. We find some escape. The title of the sermon is, How Do You Respond to Suffering? And so the question is, what is your distraction? What is your escape? Do you avoid asking the hard questions by working hard? When you just don't have time for pain because you've got too much to do, maybe even if it's good things. Or do you run away from the suffering of broken dreams by seeking entertainment? When you try to pass that exam or get that promotion or start that business and it all fails. And so now you become a movie junkie or a sports junkie or a computer game junkie or a book junkie. Is that so very different at the heart level from the man who turns to drugs and alcohol just to check out of his miserable life for a while? The truth is, as sinful people, we would often do just about anything to drown out the pain. Have you heard of the phrase, comfort food? There is no food or work or entertainment that can actually make sense of your suffering. Only God has the answers. Only God has true comfort. All these other substitutes will just leave you worn out, fat, and wasted, even though they work for a little while. God is a better comforter. Do you want proof? He sent his son to die so that he could adopt you and end all of your suffering, to wipe away every tear, to heal every hurt. But the catch is that you can't avoid the pain. You have to face it and talk to God about it. But even in this, God has not left you alone. He has provided for you a helper who will help you to talk to God and ask your anguish questions. And so, pour out your heart before the Lord. In conclusion, be comforted that it is a normal thing to struggle through anger, regrets, and anguished questioning in the midst of suffering. But also be encouraged that it is through seeking answers from God that you honor Him and fear Him in the midst of your suffering. Only He can truly comfort you, and by seeking Him, you are suffering wisely. Let us pray.